And it's therefore fitting that we're thinking about living in hope because being baptized into Christ Jesus is to be baptized into hope. Now, look, I'm conscious over the last 12 months we've had a lot of talk of hope, particularly around the pandemic. We hope that this will be the last wave. We hope that the vaccine program and rollout is going to go well. And just because hope is so much part of our human walk, I hoped until yesterday that the football team I support would win the FA Cup. And yesterday they did, Leicester City. So you see, sometimes hope on a human level is fulfilled. But of course, many times it's not. And today, as we think about um, this third talk in a little mini-series that we've been doing on the weekend, the Church Family Weekend, we think about living in hope and how Jesus actually lived in hope. And that might be a surprise for some of us, and therefore what it means for us to live in hope. Now, as we start thinking about hope, I want to suggest to you that this is particularly important for us as a culture at large, because I think we've got what I would call a shrinking horizon of hope. Hope is your ability to look to the future and have a degree of confidence about what the future holds. The more confidence you have in the future, the more likely you are to invest in it in a holistic way, maybe financially, but just to plan for the future, to think about the future, to emotionally invest in the future. But of course, if the future is uncertain, if the future is increasingly uncertain, then that horizon shrinks and pushes you back into the here and now, maybe even pushes you looking back to yesteryear. And so it's a feature of the last five or ten years or so that we've got a growing culture of nostalgia. Nostalgia literally means a longing for home. It's a harking back to the comfort, to the familiarity of yesteryear. Now, you see it a lot in the film reruns that no doubt you've watched ad nauseum over lockdown, you know, kind of Star Wars, Ghostbusters, the Marvel and DC comics, Um, films are, of course, comic book films. And therefore, for many people, if you were that type of child who read the comic books, it's nostalgic. That's the point. But it's not just the films. It's also the retro fashion trends. You know, the 80s and the disco kind of trends have come back, and we see them coming into our TVs, but also in some of the fashions as well that we wear. But it's not just popular culture. Also, I wonder if you've noticed how nostalgia is a big theme in politics. Donald Trump's famous campaign, whatever you think of it, Make America Great Again. That's nostalgia. Looking back to a a bygone era when America was great and trying to recapture it. It's not just America. Part of China's global expansion and this big push that they've got is under the dream of the great rejuvenation. Notice the emphasis on re. It's a rejuvenation. It's them rediscovering what they once were, fulfilling the Chinese dream. That's nostalgia. Now, if we're spending a lot of time thinking about the now and looking back, why is this a problem? Where is this a problem? Well, I think it's a problem, first of all, because hope matters. Let's think, first of all, why does hope matter? Hope is not just, and I really want you to get this, hope is not just a break glass in case of emergency type virtue. You know, it's that thing that you keep and it's there when you really need it, when life goes to the wall, then you need hope. No, no, no. Hope is fundamental to to life, even when things are going well. So think of um, key areas like um, progress and innovation. You know, I I took a look on my computer this morning. I've got Mac OS system 10.13.16. I mean, not exactly natty, is it? But if I was to say to you, is the Mac OS system 10 better than the Mac OS system 8? You'd say, well, well, of course it's better, right? I mean, if it was worse, it would be called 9 or a lower number. And so in, in technology and innovation, we get this impression of progress, of we're moving towards a better future. But then how many times have you had one of those upgrades when you're like, ah, that feature's gone, or my computer's slowed, and it's actually worse now, right? 
So that doesn't mean it's improving. So just because we narrate progress all the time in our culture doesn't mean we are actually progressing in our culture. The thinker C.S. Lewis put it memorably when he said, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And therefore, if you've taken a wrong turn, to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing a U-turn and going back the other way. So we have an appearance of progress, but are we really progressing? Not just technology and you know, cultural innovation, but also think about morality. Morality always puts before you a future vision of yourself for a future society that will be better if only it can be achieved. That's an exercise of hope. Beauty and art, the famous modern artist Gerhard Richter, the abstract artist, said art is the highest form of hope. Why? Because in art, you're exploring the future, you're exploring new possibilities, new aesthetics about the way that things can come together, or new musical possibilities. Again, it's an exercise in moving out, moving forward, inhabiting hope. So here's the punchline. Whether politics or morality, whether technology or art, all of human life is an exercise of hope. So when you have a shrinking horizon of hope, that really starts to impact us. We start to notice it in the restlessness we feel, in the rising rates of anxiety we see in society, in the sense of ill at ease, in the frustration with the politics and the status quo. We start to turn on one another because when we're not moving forward, we often start to argue and invest our energies into critiquing the now. Hope really matters to life. But also, of course, hope is fundamental to coping with suffering and death. There's a brilliant book, it's a Pulitzer Prize winning book, I recommend it to you by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, where he talks about how Western culture particularly really struggles with the idea of death. And I think that's poignant in the light of the pandemic because to see the, the kind of daily death rates on our screens, you know, each moment has been kind of traumatic for us as a culture because we don't know how to face up to death. Ernest Becker writes this, man or humanity is literally split in two. We have an awareness of our own splendid uniqueness in that we stick out of nature with a towering majesty, and yet we go back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It's a really cheery book, by the way. Look, what he's saying is actually a profound point, though I know it's not you know, easy digestion on a Sunday morning. He's saying this. He's saying everything about us as human beings aches for significance, yearns for a sense of my life matters. I'm not just a random collection of atoms. I'm not just one in a million you know, people who's going to be born today and forgotten tomorrow. I matter. My achievements matter. My relationships are significant. The things I do matter that they will live on. And yet he's saying that when we all end up in the ground, as we all will, it raises profound questions about that. How can we matter when we all end up dead? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Or as one of the um, uh, funeral parlor workers always says to me when I conduct a funeral at the end of it, see you next time. That's the human existence. We're just on the conveyor belt of death. So how is death not a hammer blow to significance and to hope? How do we cope with that? Now, this is even more potentially significant, I think, when we think about it in relation to Jesus Christ. Because here's the question. If Jesus Christ is the pattern that we should follow as human beings, if he is the one that we follow in the footsteps of, 
Did he ever have any idea what it means to live by hope? Just pause for a moment. Don't we normally think that because Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man, but we think because he's fully God, that like God, he knows all of space, time, and history in an instant. Now, if that's the case, that means there's no such thing as hope for him. Because hope always implies a sense of you have to trust. You don't know. You can't be certain. You might have good reasons for trusting, of course, and that strengthens hope. But if you know that it's going to happen with 100% certainty, if, like God, you see all of space, time, and history as one, there's no such thing as hope. You know it as surely as you know what happened yesterday or you know what's happening right now. It's just certainty. There's no hope there. But Scripture says faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the certainty of what we do not see. In other words, faith is assurance, but it's not I know with a sense of I see it right now. So did Jesus live in hope? Does he know what it's like as a human being to have anxiety about the future? Does he know what it's like to question what's going to happen tomorrow? Or was it just easy for him because he's God and he sees all of history and time in one and so therefore there was no such thing as hope and so he doesn't really identify with you when you're struggling. No, well, let me show you from Psalm 22 primarily that Jesus lived in hope. In Psalm 22, we get this remarkable prophecy about the sufferings of Jesus, and they're remarkable in their accurate detail, hundreds of years before Jesus died on the cross. Though more than just a prophecy, Jesus claims these words on the cross. When, for example, in Mark 15, 34, he says, Psalm 22, verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's because he's using the psalm on the cross to understand his experience, to cling, I suggest to you, in hope to the Father. And what I want to focus on is how in the psalm the motivation that sustains Jesus is hope. Look at verse 19 if you've got it open or I'll read it to you if you don't. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Now, do you notice how he's crying out for deliverance in the middle part of the psalm? And so just as Jesus Christ on the cross is crying out for deliverance from the pain of the cross, from the agony of the cross from the uncertainty of what the cross will mean for him. And as he cries out, he gets that note of hope in verse 22, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. That's hope. That's him trusting in the future. That's him trusting in the Father's deliverance of him from the cross and from the agonies of the cross. Hebrews 12 verses 2 to 3 makes this clear for us. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, when Jesus is contemplating the cross, when he's walking the path to the cross, when he's experiencing the pain of the cross, what is it that gets him through it? It's the same thing that would get any human being through profound pain and agony. It's the sense of there's going to be a brighter day. There's joy beyond this. There's hope of a future for me beyond this. He trusts in that, which is a very human experience. But I suggest to you that he doesn't know with certainty that he's going to be delivered. 
because he's fully human. We've seen this over the church family weekend as we've been thinking about this. We've been saying that for Jesus to be fully God and fully human at the same time, it's really important that his divinity never replaces or overrides his humanity, and his humanity never undermines or overrides his divinity. You have to hold both together. Well, it is not a human quality to know the future. As human beings, we are bound to space and to time. That's part of our finitude, our creatureliness as being human beings. So if, as a human being, I knew the future, I saw the future as I see the present, as I see the past, that's not being a creature. That's not being a human being. And look, we get this in Scriptures. Mark 13, 32, Jesus speaks about the future, and he says this, about that day or hour, the judgment day to come, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. In other words, he's saying, I don't know. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the divine Son of God, who is also fully human, says, I don't know. Now, he could know because he's God, but he chooses not to know in submission to the Father because he doesn't want to override his humanity. So he doesn't know what the future holds. And that means that he's not omniscient. That means to know all things. He has to trust his Father in heaven with the future, just like you do, just like I do. So think of this. He sees the prophecies about the resurrection. He believes the prophecies about the resurrection, but he doesn't know with certainty as the Father knows that the resurrection will happen when he goes to the cross. There has to be that element of uncertainty that we have as creatures. Listen to Calvin on this, book 2, chapter 14, last bit of meaty theology for the morning. Calvin says, some seize upon the attributes of Jesus' humanity to take away his divinity, and that's a mistake. Conversely, some seize upon those aspects of his divinity to take away his humanity. But what else is this than contend that Christ is not man because he is God, or that he is not God because he's man? We must hold that Christ, as he is God and man, consisting of two natures united but not mingled, is our Lord and the true Son of God. In other words, he's got to be both together. And he can't have omniscience about the future, therefore. He has to live in hope, because to do anything else would not be to be human. Okay, so much for the theology. Let me try to ground this. Why does this matter? I often find when I'm talking to people about the cross that they say something like this. Look, sure, okay, the cross looks painful, but it was easier for Jesus because he's God. Have you ever been tempted to think like that? Or you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, you're thinking, why is he so anxious? I mean, after all, he's God. He knows what's going to happen. And so that lack of uncertainty surely assuages many of the fears, right? So do you struggle to really believe that Jesus is experiencing anguish? Do you struggle to really believe that on the cross it was really painful for him? Because you're thinking, well, he's God, right? Yes, he is God, but he's also fully human. So when you see him in the cross crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's experiencing the agony of Psalm 22. And he's experiencing that uncertainty. If he doesn't know what the future will hold, he knows God's promises. He's perfectly trusting the Father's promises. But he's not certain. And that's part of the agony for him. He sees the prophecies about the resurrection. He trusts the prophecies perfectly because he's the perfect son. But he has to trust, and that's hard. That's painful. 
when he's sorrowful to the point of death in the garden. He's not play-acting, my friends. He's not just putting it on. You know, if you've, during this pandemic, experienced some dark nights of the soul when you've said, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what the future holds. That's what Jesus experiences in the Garden of Gethsemane. He clings to hope perfectly as the perfectly obedient son clings to the father. But he doesn't know, just as you don't know. And therefore, he's able to draw alongside you in your dark night, and he's able to say, I know what you're going through. I've been through the darkest night of all. In Dante's divine comedy, Above the Entrance to Hell, it says, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. But actually, the irony of that is that the only way Jesus was able to endure the hell, the hell of the cross, is because he didn't abandon hope. He clung to it perfectly, trusting in the promises of the Father. That was what got him through. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then also, I will declare your name to my people in the assembly. I will praise you. So what does that mean for us? Look, it means, above all things, we should live in hope because Jesus lived in hope. Hope has to navigate its way between two rocks. It's like a ship that's constantly being buffeted between two dangerous rocks. Naivety on one hand and despair on the other hand. Naivety destroys hope because you put hope in the wrong thing and then it's dashed on the rocks of reality. And you say, I'm never going to trust again. And so often younger people can be naive, older people, well, I'm not sure where I'd put myself, but you can, you can tend to despair because you say, I tried that. I was trusting in my youth, but I've been let down relationally. I've been let down by the politicians. I'm not going to trust them again. So you become hardened, brittle, thin, despair. So with that in mind, it's important to see that Psalm 22 is neither naive nor is it despairing. Christian hope is not naive and it's not despairing. It's not naive. I mean, the Psalm 22, read through it again. Jenna read it brilliantly for us, but take some time to read through it. It talks about the worst of this world. It confronts it full bore in the face. This is the Christian gospel, not some happy, clappy, saccharine sweet, so disengaged with reality, so up on cloud nine that it's got nothing to say to the gritty realities of life. Psalm 22 is the gospel, and it's full of the worst of this world, Betrayal of Jesus, even by those closest to him. Verse 6, I am scorned by everyone. Injustice, even though Jesus did nothing wrong. Verse 16, a pack of villains encircles me. Mockery, even though Jesus is worthy of all honor and praise. Verse 8, he trusts in the Lord. They say, let the Lord rescue him. Sin, even though Jesus is perfectly sinless. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. Death, even though Jesus is the Lord of life. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Betrayal, injustice, mockery, sin, death. Is that naive? No, that's the world we live in, right? That's the news you used to look at every night. That's the newspapers that trouble you every morning. That's not naive. That's saying this is the way the world is. But does it leave you wallowing in the darkness in despair? No, not despairing either. The gospel is not despairing because what is hinted at in Psalm 22 becomes a glorious, fully formed reality in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How fitting it is 
that on this seventh Sunday of Easter, when we think about the resurrection, that on a day when we've seen dying to self and rising to new life, just as Jesus rose from the tomb, that we remember that the resurrection overcomes the darkness of this world. Faith where there was betrayal. Verse 22 of the psalm, I will declare your name to my people. Justice where there was injustice. Verse 26, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Wrongs will be righted. Honor where there has been mockery. Verse 23, all you descendants of Jacob, honor him. The one mocked on the cross is honored, raised in glory. Righteousness where there has been sin. Verse 31, they will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he's done it. Life where there has been death. Verse 24, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So please notice the resurrection, the gospel of hope, doesn't take place in spite of the difficulties of life. It doesn't take place in spite of death. It takes place in the very place of the difficulties of life. That's why the resurrection takes place in the tomb. Light breaks into the tomb because the tomb is everything that's bad about humanity. Death, suffering, loss, pain. But the stone is rolled back. Light breaks in. The grave clothes are left there. It's empty. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? That's the resurrection. Not naive, oh, but not despairing. In the midst of the pandemic, when people were really struggling to see any hope, an elderly Auschwitz survivor called Edith Eger, a psychologist as well, wrote a small essay on how she survived Auschwitz because of hope. It was very poignant and very beautiful. She wrote this. During the long, terrible days and nights in Auschwitz, I'd choose what to hold in my mind. I'd think of my boyfriend, Eric, how our romance kindled at a time of war, how we'd go picnicking by the river, eating my mother's delicious fried chicken and potato salad, planning our future. I'd picture our reunion, how we would melt into each other's arms with joy and relief. It's not the daydreaming about Eric, she wrote, erased the horror of what I was experiencing. It didn't bring back my parents or ease the pain of their deaths or the looming threat of my own in Auschwitz, but thinking of him helped me see past where I was to envision a tomorrow that included my beloved to keep starvation and torture in perspective. I was living through hell on earth, and it was temporary. If it was temporary, it could be survived. Isn't that a remarkable testimony? Do you see how hope sustained her even in the worst that the world had to offer? She's saying it doesn't erase the horror, but it keeps things in perspective. It allowed her to envision a tomorrow that the hell she was living through wasn't the end. Friends, if even the hope of seeing a boyfriend again, of having a picnic, something as simple and profound as that, can sustain someone through the horrors of Auschwitz, what do you think the hope of the resurrection can do for you? The hope of the resurrection is not just some reunion with a boyfriend, as wonderful as that might be. The hope of the resurrection is reunion with God, who is more precious to you than 10,000 lovers, the author of life himself, and with all those who trust in Christ, and never to die again, to live in eternity, this world made new. The hope of the resurrection is not just some picnic, but it's a great banquet, a banquet we're going to celebrate later, the great banquet where everyone is invited to the finest feast, to joy, to relationship restored, to celebration for eternity. 
The hope of the resurrection is not just sitting by a river, as beautiful as that picture is for her, but it's the river of life flowing down for the healing of the nations. I mean, if that sustained her, what can the resurrection do for you? And it's true. Oh, praise God, it's true. Jesus died, but three days later he rose again in space-time and history. Body was never found. Witnesses saw him. People touched him, ate meals with him, spoke with him for hours on end, and then witnessed to it, and did not deny that testimony until their dying breath. This is something you can build your life on. As Andy said, a sure anchor for the soul. So we all want hope. Our culture has a shrinking horizon of hope. And this resurrection uniquely gives us hope. So as I close, let me just apply this. You know, we have a phrase sometimes we use, don't we? Someone's so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good. (laughs) Well, Jesus Christ has made more impact on this world than any other person. And what did it for him? Was the hope of the resurrection. In other words, the hope of heaven. It was his heavenly mindedness that made him earthly good. And that's why the people that do most for this world are the people who dwell most on the world to come. William Wilberforce, the abolition of slavery. How was he able to endure the scorn of his generation and keep on keeping on doing what was right? Hope. Earl of Shaftesbury, how was he able to bring about the reforms that we enjoy now in our society? Education for children, caring for the poor and the vulnerable, when people said it wasn't economically prudent and mocked him for it. Hope. It was because those people spent time thinking about heaven that they were able to endure and transform the present. You want to live a life that matters? You want to be able to endure in the difficulties of life right now? Have hope. Dwell on the wonder of heaven, this world made new. The environment matters. The vulnerable matter. How you raise your children matter. How you conduct your relationships matters. How you do your jobs matters. Because it's all part of the world to come the world that will be made new. Secondly and lastly, I'm aware that as we emerge from lockdown, the last year or so has been brutal for many people. It's part of the strange thing looking out, seeing the masks. I can't really read your faces, but I know some of the stories that lie behind the masks. I know some of the pain you're experiencing now. How do you keep on keeping on? How do you not despair when things are tough? Hope. Listen to these words. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. He didn't grow weary. He didn't lose heart because of hope. And my friends, as remarkable as it is, it's the same hope you have. Hope in the Father. Hope in the resurrection. Hope in deliverance. Hope that one day the sun will rise and the darkness will be chased away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Remarkable that though he was fully God, he was also fully human. And therefore he lived a life trusting you, his Father, in hope. And in that way, he is our pattern to follow. He was able to endure things in the now for the joy set before him. While Lord God, we also have great joy set before us because of his resurrection from the dead. Whatever we're going through right now, Lord, whether we need sustaining in life or whether we need sustaining as we cope with death, Lord God, fill us up with this hope by your Spirit, we pray, that we might trust you and keep walking with you, and we ask it for Jesus' sake and for his glory. 
Amen.